Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Well, you might like to uh, keep uh, your Bibles open or open a Bible if you haven't done so already, uh, page uh, 473, as we begin to look at the book of Ezra. And let me pray for us now as we do just that. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have great confidence uh, because we've experienced it many times before that as we turn to an ancient book from your word, we discover that it is as uh, up-to-date and as relevant to us as ever. And we pray we discover that again as we look at the book of Ezra both tonight and over these next weeks. And we pray that you would speak to us powerfully through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Through history, every every now and again, somewhere in the world, God's church experiences a time of great revival, a a time of phenomenal growth in numbers and and new depths of commitment to God from his people. I love hearing the stories of revivals. I think of the Welsh revival at the beginning of the 20th century. God did a mighty work in Wales that saw churches packed to the rafters for years And there are some brilliant stories of the impact that this revival had right through Welsh society. The Welsh police force formed a male voice choir and spent their time travelling around Wales performing concerts because crime rates fell so dramatically. They didn't have anything else to do, so they sang in the valleys. (laughs) Even the pit ponies were affected by the revival. There, There are stories of the ponies that worked down the coal mines no longer understanding the commands that the miners had given them. You see, as people were converted, they stopped swearing. And because so many miners were converted, the swearing down the pit ended and the pit ponies no longer understood the commands they were given without any expletives thrown in. The Welsh revival is just one of those times when a great work of God has transformed the church and a whole community. Now, those times in history are few and far between, but but that doesn't mean that the church just has to wait for a time of revival in order for us to be what we should be. Karl Barth, the German theologian, borrowed a phrase from St. Augustine, Ecclesia Semper Raphamanda. It's Latin, and that is probably the only time you'll ever hear me quote any Latin. Ecclesia Semper Raphamanda. It's uh, Latin for the church is always to be reformed. It's the conviction that the church must continually re-examine itself. We must continually check that we believe what we believe lines up with what the Bible teaches. Have we just gone astray in the last 10, 20, 30, 50 years? And it says we must continually check that our lives square up with the teaching of the Bible. The church is always to be reformed. Lives should continually be changed and transformed into the likeness of Christ. We see that happening when people are converted to Christ. And when it happens when the Holy Spirit works in a believer in such a way that they give themselves wholeheartedly to Christ. Maybe never having done that fully before. I've seen it happen in this church family a number of times in these last few years with some individuals. Seeing individuals spiritually awakened, it's a very special thing. But when it happens to a whole church family or across a a, a city, it is spectacular and it has the most remarkable impact on the community. Now today, as we turn to the book of Ezra, we are turning to a book which is all about realising a reformation, a reforming of God's people. 
From chapter 1 to chapter 10, we see God bringing about the most remarkable change among his people. And we're going to look at this over the next 10 weeks. And so my prayer has been that in the next 10 weeks, God would speak to us powerfully as we look at this book. And then by the power of his Holy Spirit, so work in us and so change us that we become more the people he wants to be so that other people will notice and that they want in as they see something spectacular among us. As we open the book of Ezra and read verse 1, it's 539 BC. You'll see there in verse 1, Cyrus has just become king of Persia. Persia is the superpower of the day. And God's people, Judah, are in exile and have been for getting on for 70 years now. They were taken captive by the Babylonians and unceremoniously dragged out of Jerusalem and relocated in Babylon. And now, all these years later, Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem is in tatters. And the temple is central to the first six chapters of Ezra. When the temple was first built by King Solomon, it was a most glorious structure. It was never listed as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, but it might well have made the top ten. By now, after years of neglect, it was in ruins. And that really mattered because the temple was not just another ancient monument. No, the temple was the place where people would go to meet God. It was the means by which God lived among his people. At the temple, people could come to God through making a sacrifice at the altar. So here's the phrase we're going to use again and again to understand the temple. It was the only place where you could meet God through sacrifice. Now, once we understand it like that, we understand its relevance to us as Christians. The only place where we can meet God through sacrifice points us to Jesus. See, today, 25 centuries later, there is no Jewish temple. It was razed to the ground in AD 70 and it's never been rebuilt. And that's because we don't need it any longer. Because Jesus said that his body was the temple. Jesus is the one we go to to meet God. We don't have to go to a building, we go to Jesus. And we meet God through Jesus' sacrifice of himself on the cross. As Christians then, whenever we read about the temple in the Old Testament, we should first and foremost think about Jesus. The way we come to God through sacrifice, Jesus. But there's a second New Testament understanding of the temple. In both 1 and 2 Corinthians, we read that the church, God's people are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God dwells among us by his Holy Spirit because we have come to God through Jesus' sacrifice. And as we proclaim Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death on the cross, so others can come to know him too. So in that sense, we are the temple where God lives among his people and where God can be met as the gospel is proclaimed. And it's that second understanding of the temple, of us being the temple of the Holy Spirit of God, that the book of Ezra speaks so powerfully into today. For as the book of Ezra is written, the physical temple, the bricks and mortar were in ruins and needed to be rebuilt. And today, indeed, whenever we look at the church, not bricks and mortar, but the people of God, whenever we look at the church, we are always looking at a building project, never a complete house. Ecclesia Semper Raphamanda. We need to be reformed continually to be built into the people we need to be. 
And we can see that very clearly in Britain in the 21st century, where very often the church is in ruins. So we need a mighty work of God to rebuild it. That's what we'll see in the book of Ezra. And it all begins after that rather long introduction here in chapter one with this point, God fulfilling his word, verse one. Look at verse one. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, and so on. See what happens in the book of Ezra is a fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah. If you're taking notes, write down Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 10. And later on you can look it up where you'll read this. The Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. God said those words through Jeremiah as his people were being carted off to Babylon and into exile. At that exceptionally low point in Jesus' history, God promised that after 70 years, he would take his people out of exile and back to Jerusalem, back home. And now, against all the odds, that promise, that promise, that prophecy was being fulfilled 70 years later. That's what Ezra is saying here. It's a great encouragement to us. It's a great encouragement to us because we too are in exile. This is not our home. You can read about this in the book of 1 Peter. We are strangers and aliens here, exiles in this land. And as a result, life is tough as a Christian. So tough that some people give up the Christian life. So there are bound to be times when those of us who are keeping going wonder, will we ever make it home? At times we're sure to ask, will God keep his promises? And very specifically, will he keep his promises to keep his church, his people? Here's a great encouragement. Here we see God's keeping his promise made 70 years earlier. And a very specific promise to bring his people out of exile and back to Jerusalem. What looked impossible was now beginning to be fulfilled. That's the first thing we see in Ezra chapter 1. God fulfilling his word. Secondly, we see God moving in hearts to fulfill his word. See, twice we read the same sort of thing in this chapter about God working in hearts Verse 1 again, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm. We see the same sort of thing in verse 5. God's word is fulfilled as God moves in the hearts of his people again. Do you see it there? That Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord. So we see God moving in hearts twice in this, in this chapter fulfilled, to fulfill his word. And first we see God moves in the hearts of unbelievers. This is verses 1 to 4. See verse 1, God moved the heart of Cyrus to make a proclamation. And verses 2 to 4 is where we read what he wrote, the proclamation he wrote. Verse 2, this is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He's appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you 
May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. And the people of any place where survivors may now be living are to provide him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. It is a quite explosive start to the book of Ezra. Cyrus was the leader of the most powerful empire on the planet. So here is the most powerful man in the world helping Jewish exiles to return to Jerusalem in order to rebuild the temple. Now, as I read Cyrus's proclamation, it might have seemed that Cyrus was a follower of the Lord, but don't be fooled. It's not that straightforward. Things rarely are straightforward when it comes to the faith of world leaders. Just think about all that's going on across the pond at the moment during the US primaries. History is very clear that Cyrus was not a believer in the Lord. I think Cyrus was just a political pragmatist. And I can say that history is very clear because of something called the Cyrus Cylinder. You can read all about it on the British Museum website. You don't have to be clever. You just have to go to the British Museum website. And it will tell you this. The Cyrus Cylinder is a barrel-shaped clay artefact that is just nine inches long. It's 2,500 years old, dating back to 539 BC. It's been described as the first declaration of human rights because it records how Cyrus restored shrines dedicated to many different gods. You see, Cyrus was a brilliant political leader. His intention was to allow freedom to worship uh, to displaced people like the Jews who'd been taken into exile. Today, the Cyrus Cylinder is seen as a symbol of tolerance and respect for different religions and faiths. That may well have been the case, but I'm a sceptic. I wonder if Cyrus just acted as he did to keep everyone happy. So all these people from all over his, his, um, his empire, he just said, no, you can worship your God, you can worship your God, you can worship your God, I'm going to keep everyone happy. Whatever his motivation, history throws a very clear light on verses 2 to 4. This was part of a wider policy to allow freedom of religion to displaced people. So don't get the wrong end of the stick. Cyrus wasn't a believer in the one true living God. And that is what makes this so explosive. The God that Cyrus didn't believe in moved in Cyrus's heart to enable his people to return to Jerusalem to build the temple. That's how powerful our God is. He can move the hearts of people, whether they acknowledge him or not, whether they believe in him or not. God is God, and he has the hearts of kings and princes in his hands. What an encouragement. What an encouragement for us to pray. Look, keep your finger or something or your uh, service sheet in Ezra, and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Page 1192 is the page number. If you're a bit hot as you sort of flick the pages, you'll get a bit cooler. It's worth flicking. 1, Peter, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Now look what Timothy writes, uh, what Paul writes to Timothy. Chapter 2, 1192, chapter 2 verse 1. It's all about praying. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercessions and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings, 
and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. See what's going on there. Paul says in verse 4, God wants everyone to come to know him. So, verse 1, pray for those in authority and verse 2, pray for peace. Pray for leaders to create an environment where the gospel can be freely proclaimed. Now, my guess is that very few of us pray for our government. It was great that Johnny did tonight. My guess is that even less of us pray that those in authority in this nation would govern in a way that enables the gospel to flourish. Let me ask you, did that motivate how you voted in the local elections on Thursday? Did you pray that the ele- about the elections and did you vote for the candidates that were most likely to help the proclamation of the gospel in this land? Will that motivate your voting in the EU referendum? Will you be praying in the lead up to the referendum that God would fashion an outcome that will be most beneficial to the proclamation of the gospel in this land and in Europe? That's how we should be praying according to Paul in 1 Timothy. And back in Ezra, we see it's worth praying like that because God moved Cyrus's heart. God can move the hearts of unbelievers, even the most powerful unbeliever in the world, so that the church can be reformed so that the church has freedom to proclaim the gospel. Even we might dare to pray for revival. Then we need to pray that God would move in the hearts of those in political power to create an environment where God's people are free to get on with gospel proclamation. Now don't mishear this. This is not to say that when God works like this, there is never any opposition. In a few chapters' time, we'll see no sooner than they started rebuilding the temple than opposition comes. And of course it is true that uh, very often uh, the church grows despite this happening. But the point is we should be praying for God to work in the hearts of unbelievers to give us freedom to proclaim the gospel so that we can get on and build and reform the church. So God, we've seen God moving in the hearts to, fulfill, in hearts to fulfill his word. God moves the hearts of unbelievers. Secondly, under this point, we see God moves the hearts of his people in verses 5 and 6. See, as Cyrus's proclamation has been sent throughout, the, throughout his realm, many responded. Verse 5, everyone whose heart God had moved prepared to go up to Jerusalem to build the temple. Now, this was no small thing for them to go. By this time, the people of Judah had been in exile for almost 70 years. At first, when they were carted off to Jerusalem and far from their home against their will, it would have been agony for them. But by now, all these years later, Babylon had, well, it had become home for them. And now, especially that Cyrus was king, promoting religious tolerance and with his excellent human rights record, now living in Babylon was a very comfortable option. By contrast, going down to Jerusalem would have been very difficult meant relocating the family, sorting out school places. Well, probably not that. Getting to know new neighbours, leaving behind everything that was familiar. And then when they arrived in Jerusalem, it meant hard work, hard graft, rebuilding the temple. For God's people to relocate from Babylon to Jerusalem, we'd have thought it would be easy, but no, it needed 
the work of God in their hearts for them to go. In the last year or so, we've been working hard behind the scenes to create a a number of opportunities to plant new churches in this city or, or to graft into existing churches that are struggling and need an injection of life. We want to do things to help reform the church in this city. But if that is going to happen, people will need to leave here and move into new communities. That will mean leaving what has become home, leaving familiar surroundings, leaving what has become comfortable and being ready to work hard. Planting a church is not an easy option. Frankly, when I think about the church planting plans that we have to do in the next few years, I wonder if we'll ever do any of it for all sorts of reasons, but not least of all, because I wonder if anyone will go. Well, look, it will only happen when, verse 5, God moves the hearts of his people. And of course, wonderfully, that is what has happened as we've planted churches in the last few years. What a huge encouragement it's been to see people uproot, move home, move church, put their energy and their love and their money into a completely new situation because they are committed to building the church in this city. God has done that. And we need to pray that he'll do it again. So that in the years ahead, many people want to leave here to go on a building project building the church and of course we need to pray that God would do the same among us here who remain at Fullwood Church we don't want everybody to leave there won't be anything left here we need God to work in our hearts moving our hearts so that we will put building his church before everything else what have we seen so far in chapter 1 as we come to a close well God fulfilling his word secondly God moving in hearts to fulfill his word. And thirdly, God working for the honour of his name, verses 7 to 11. Now, when I uh, first read verses 9, 10 and 11, it appeared to be to me little more than a list of the family silver. Of course, if you like the Antiques Roadshow, you might find it very interesting, but otherwise it's just a list of kitchen utensils. Don't be fooled. This is so much more than a list of bowls and dishes. Look at verse 7. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. This is very important. Cyrus now, at this point, is returning all the temple articles that had been taken by Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, when the people were taken into exile. He didn't just take the people. He took all the good stuff that was in the temple. So what looks like an inventory is a powerful picture of the exile being reversed. And with it, a powerful declaration that the Lord is God. Now listen to the words of Dale Ralph Davis on this as he looks back to Daniel chapter 5. The quote is going to come up on the screen there because it's quite a long quote, but I think it's very good. And as I read it, just bear in mind, Dale Ralph Davis uh, uses the word Yahweh for God's name, the Lord. He writes, Nebuchadnezzar originally took these vessels, these articles that are in, uh, in Ezra, originally took these vessels to Babylon in 605 BC and placed them in the treasury of his God, Now, you may be able to guess how this was interpreted by the media, at least the Babylonian media. 
Since Yahweh's furniture was pilfered, it signaled the supremacy of Babylon's gods, or so they thought. They assumed that Yahweh had been unable to stop the theft, that he'd been defeated and humiliated. So in Babylon, they sung, praise Marduk, from whom all blessings flow, and toasted one another as they used the defeated God's table service. It's a brilliant quote. You see, having these articles in Babylon had appeared to declare that the Lord was weak and indeed was defeated and defeated by the Babylonian gods. But now at the end of Ezra chapter one, Babylon no longer exists and the temple articles are being returned to the Lord's temple. Who's in charge now, eh? This speaks of the Lord's authority. It underlines the point we saw in verse 1. This is the fulfilment of God's word. This is the end of the exile and the beginning of God's people being reformed and on their way home. Of course, as the Bible unfolds, we discover that exile from God doesn't end by a trip to any earthly city. The exile is actually ended in Christ. In Christ, I discover all God's promises are fulfilled. In Christ, a true reformation of God's people begins. As we see a reformation beginning in Ezra chapter 1 then, it should be an encouragement for us. An encouragement that God fulfills his word. All his promises are kept. And this should be an encouragement for us to pray. To pray that God would move in the hearts of people to fulfill his word. To pray, to pray for God to work in the hearts of those in authority, even unbelievers. To pray that God would work in their hearts to so create an environment to enable us to freely proclaim the gospel. And to pray that God would so work in our hearts that we would be prepared to go to great lengths to work hard to see God's church built up. And if God answered that prayer, if we prayed it, And if he worked in us, we begin to see the most remarkable reformation in this church and in this city. And who knows, right across this nation. Let's pray together. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word and for this book of Ezra. And uh, as we've been thinking about praying, I can't think of anything better to pray, Lord, than you would do this very thing. In order to fulfill the promises in your word, that you would move in the hearts of unbelievers in this land, unbelievers who are in positions of mighty power, that you would so move in their hearts that there would be always freedom to proclaim the gospel. And we pray you'd work in our hearts, in the hearts of us and others in this city, other believers, working so powerfully in our hearts that we would want more than anything for your church to be built up, for the church that is in ruins to be made better, for the church, just like this one, that is incomplete to be made more complete, And we pray this so that ultimately more and more people may join the church and glorify and honour your name. And so we would pray that you would answer this prayer. Begin with us 
and change us and mould us and fashion us to be the people you'd want us to be, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.